we want to introduce you to a footwear brand changing the game for healthcare workers. Meet Gales, the first smart PPE shoe designed in collaboration with nurses. Gales feature custom machine washable insoles with cloud-like long-term arch support. These slip-resistant and feather-light shoes wipe clean in seconds and stay dry thanks to their full moisture and microbe barrier. Gales are also 40 to 50% more affordable than other healthcare footwear brands. You can shop now at weargales.com and use the code GN10, that's G as in gritty, N as in nurse, 10, for 10% off your order. So what are you waiting for? Shop Gales now. Is this thing still on? I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking? Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Green Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion about health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley. And my name is Sarah Fung. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get updates on new episodes. If you love our podcast and our advocacy work, please go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the Support Us button. This will give you access to exclusive episodes and early releases on a monthly basis. This will help us with the cost of running the podcast, the time and energy to put out awesome and informative episodes. And for that, we thank you and we appreciate you. Hi, and welcome everyone to the Greeners Podcast. Thank you so much again for tuning in week by week and listening to us. Today, we have a really hot topic that I believe is on everybody's mind. And I mean, just recently here in Canada, Canada is actually planning on banning the importation of handguns effective August 19th. So our public safety minister, Marco Mencino, and foreign affairs minister, Melanie Jolly, announced just this Friday that the federal government has decided to push ahead with the important ban without the approval of parliament. Making this move, the policy changed through the regulatory restrictions. This measure will prevent nearly all individuals and businesses from importing handguns into Canada, the government says. So before we get into this episode, I'm going to get Sarah to introduce our guests. Absolutely. I think our guest has a lot to say on this particular topic. So today we have Dr. Mark Shapiro, who is a practicing hospitalist and the creator, producer, and host of Explore the Space podcast, a show focused on bringing those who provide healthcare and those who seek healthcare closer together through conversations with leaders from across the spectrum. He is also a TEDx speaker, delivering his first TEDx in March 2021. Dr. Shapiro has been in full-time clinical practice as a hospitalist since 2006. He has served as both hospitalist medical director and member of the board of directors. He earned a BA in history at University of California, Los Angeles, attended medical school at Baylor College of Medicine, and completed his internal medicine residency at University of California, San Diego. Dr. Shapiro is an active voice on social media and can be followed on Twitter at ETS show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show, and LinkedIn at Mark Shapiro MD. 
Wow, that is a mouthful. I'm sure that's not even half of what you've done, but I just wanted to welcome you to the Greater Nurse podcast. Uh, it's very kind of you to say. It's a very kind introduction. I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I like to think of the things that we do are the things that actually impact lives, not so much what we list on CVs, but what we actually do out there at the sharp edge. So great to be here with the two of you who I know have done much of that kind of work. Yeah, definitely. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey into medicine and how you got into podcasting. This is a question that Amy and I get all the time, and I'm really curious about your story. Yeah, you know, it's, my story about how I got into medicine has actually changed since I became a dad. When I was, I'm a third generation physician. My dad was a doctor and his dad was a doctor. So when I was growing up, I didn't think I would go into medicine. When I went to UCLA, I did not plan to go into medicine. I was working as a sports writer. I was a history major. I ended up getting my degree in history. Worked in a hospital, had a great experience doing it, loved it. Really felt like this is a place where I could see myself forming a career. And went to medical school, did my residency, and I've enjoyed my career. I've been a full-time clinical practice as a hospitalist since 2016. But I always felt like, you know, I did this on my own terms and I made my own decision and things of this nature. I, I have a young son and he, when he was really young, was already saying, I want to be a doctor. Daddy, I'm going to be a doctor. Daddy, I need, a, I, I need to go get my medical kit. There's something in the DNA. There's something there. And I embrace it. I'm very comfortable with it. I don't feel like I need to push against it. But there's something in my DNA. There's something in the water. There's something in the air. That, that drew me to the field. And I'm, I'm glad of it. I'm proud of it. I love it. I'm excited that my son right now at least has some enthusiasm around it, whether he goes into it or not. We'll see. Uh, but I, I'm grateful to embrace that different approach to my journey. It feels a lot more satisfying. That's amazing. I mean, I think that, you know, it's it's really cool to have that generational aspect as well. And I mean, I guess you get to see kind of, you know, the various different aspects in terms of what, you know, your father liked or what your grandfather and like why they got into it and, yeah. and the various different modalities as well. So I think that's actually really cool. But also, we know that you have a podcast. So tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah. So, you know, I've always enjoyed storytelling. I've always enjoyed sort of the oral tradition. I was an early podcast adopter because I always liked audiobooks and things like that. I was doing work with a, uh, a company that I still do work with, Practicing Excellence, which we do work around, you know, clinician experience, mentorship, coaching, leadership, and felt like, you know, they should, they should have a podcast. So I saw what it took to actually launch one. So for me, the biggest barrier was the technical aspects and not feeling like, hey, I know how to do any of this stuff. I've never learned. Therefore, I'm, you know, conflict averse, afraid of failure guy. Let's, let's just not even wade into those waters. But I saw what it looked like and it felt reasonable to try. And I was passionate about it because at that time I was kind of an early to mid career attending. And there were clearly gaps in understanding that I was experiencing from the side of a physician and from those who I was seeking to take care of on a wide variety of topics. And so sort of set out with this very pie in the sky idea of let's try to close some of these gaps. Let's try to have conversations with interesting, intelligent, engaged people on topics that seem like they matter, that topics that seem like they're important. And let's see what happens. And, you know, explore the space. We started in 2015. It's blown every expectation I ever dreamed of completely out of the water. I'm almost at 300 episodes now. We've done this extraordinary eclectic mix of topics and guests, but really been able to hone in on things like gender equity, climate change, gun violence, leadership, coaching, Med Lasso, which is based on the TV show Ted Lasso, lots of different things that have made this just an incredible journey. 
Uh, I'm super proud of it and I have no idea where it's going next, but I absolutely love it. You know, that that's amazing. That's kind of the same journey that we're on. And yeah. we're always excited when we meet other uh, advocates, other podcasters that are doing the same work that we are. And I, I love the element that you mentioned. It's very similar. It's like the similar vibe to ours where storytelling is super important. And I yep. feel that's how you can connect with audience. That's how you connect with people. And it's also kind of the anchoring point in terms of advocacy as well. And I think that you kind of mentioned that at the top of the, ep- the episode. And we're really going to get into some really good conversations conversation today. And as we're talking about advocacy, I have noticed that you're a strong advocate in relation to gun control, gun violence as a physician. Was there a story or an incident or something that became that made you become much more vocal? You know, that's a great question. And I think that as just like my my journey about becoming a doctor changes over time, I think that my understanding of my own journey will probably evolve over time. Right now, I was in a space of just being receptive to change, you know, doing things like starting to explore the space, getting comfortable on social media, which I hadn't been before, being mature enough as an attending to be able to look back on my training and understand that there were things that were sort of taught, inculcated, put forward as being normal that actually I felt like probably were not consistent with what I should be doing as a doctor, Um, learning to understand what it means to be a white male physician in the United States and the and the privilege that comes with that. Hearing terms like implicit bias for the first time and, and understanding what mine might look like and reading about that and, and learning about it and just being in a place of wanting to understand this next phase of my career differently. But also as someone who's always been engaged, you know, I've always been interested in politics. I've always been interested in history. I've always been interested in advocacy as insofar as other people doing it. Because for me, it was physicians don't do this stuff. It's not our job. It's not our responsibility. It's unprofessional. It's not your fight. There was this whole litany of things that many generations of American physicians heard. And I came to realize that that was wrong. Um, I didn't come to it through an epiphany. Really, really smart, kind, and intelligent people helped me to understand it. And the story that I share the most, because we know storytelling really can drive change, I had Dr. Mona Hanna teach on Explore the Space podcast, and she's a pediatrician from Flint, Michigan. And she wrote a book called What the Eyes Don't See around the seminal research that she did exposing the lead contamination in the municipal water supply in Flint, Michigan that was affecting patients that she was seeing. And she spoke to local officials, city officials, state officials. She was criticized. She took all the slings and arrows, and she stood that she stood tall. Uh, seeing her do that was, was extraordinarily inspiring for me. And then actually getting to speak with her and the message that she shared with me on the show was every physician carries a megaphone and we have a responsibility to use it. And that word choice really stuck with me. My, my career pivoted when I spoke with her because I, in that space of understanding my privilege and understanding all of the different things that I was really well trained at, all of the different interests that I have. That, and now I'm creating a platform on a podcast in this booming you know, media sphere. I have a responsibility to, to wade into these things, acknowledging I can't do all of them and acknowledging I'm going to make mistakes and acknowledging that things will continue to change. But I, I have to wade in. On the subject of gun violence, the, the biggest thing uh, was seeing the legion of physicians wake up uh, to the issue vocally. And I don't mean to impugn that we weren't already involved. But there was that the, that tweet from the National Rifle Association in November of 2018 that said physicians need to stay in their lane. Right. I remember that. I, I was fairly new on Twitter at that stage, but just seeing all these physicians all across America 
weighing in and saying, this is absolutely our lane. I had already been doing some stuff around gun violence on Explore the Space podcast, but that was where I was, my megaphone needs to be, among other places, in this space. That's so inspiring to hear that. And it's it's interesting that you say that a lot of physicians don't feel that it's their place to advocate because nurses feel that way even yeah. more so. There's yeah. huge fear silencing in nursing. A lot of nurses, myself included in the beginning, felt like, you know, someone else is going to advocate. I don't have to worry about it because someone will do it. Someone else is going to do it. Yep. But honestly, now that we're doing this, if we don't do it, I feel like I don't know who is going to do it. So we do have a responsibility. And once you start on that journey, it just becomes easier, but it becomes just part of what you do. Like you just get better at it. So I think that's really important. And I think even in terms of gun violence, there's been so many mass shootings this year, hundreds, and it just becomes, it just seems so easy to, for the media at least, to forget about what happens and people's lives. So I just wonder, um, what do you think about that? Like how, how is it that the media can forget so easily about all of these shootings? You know, I think that having worked for a short time as a sports writer and now being a podcaster and being active on social media, you see how fast and how sudden and how jarring the news cycles are. It's not like it was, I'm 46 years old. It was the NBC nightly news with Tom Brokaw at eight o'clock. And that was where you kind of got your news of the day. That is an anachronism in the strictest sense of the word, right? We get news by the five-minute change. Right. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. every time you log on to social media, something else is trending. And so the the ability to absorb all of it, no one can. It's too much. And so the news cycle, that it's not necessarily focused on selecting the topic. It's selecting the topic that's going to drive clicks and views because that's where the revenue comes from. Right. So I think that the, that mixture of shortened attention spans, so many different places that are generating information and then just the absolute tidal wave of information. It's hard for anything to stay at the top of the headlines for too long. Specifically to gun violence, though, I think that we also have an opportunity to leverage those same things because we can wade into these same platforms, right? I'm not Tom Brokaw on NBC at eight o'clock, but people tune in to explore the space. People follow me on social media and physicians and healthcare professionals and nurses like yourselves who create platforms for themselves, you're doing it so that people will come and listen to what you have to say. There's a responsibility that comes with that, but there's an extraordinary opportunity that comes with it. So we can highlight things that are important, whether it be gun violence, whether it be climate change, whether it be whatever is germane and whatever feels mission-driven to you, but it can be very, very powerful. And it kind of keeps that voltage high on topics that need it. Oh, absolutely. It's just... From from our Canadian standpoint and our lens, it's like... Man, you must just be rolling your eyes at us. We are just in total shock. We actually don't understand. Personally, don't know anyone in Canada ha- that has a gun. And if yeah. somebody said to me, can you go out and get a gun? I wouldn't even know where to do it. I'd have to yeah. look it up. It's not really like, you can't go to Walmart. It's not like that at all here. No, the, it's, it's, it's 46% of Americans live in a household with at least one firearm. Which is so foreign to us here, right? When when we see what's happening in the States, like with the Buffalo shooting with Yule Vale, and as it just continues, like now they're talking about Sandy Hook because Alex Jones is is in court and we're watching that all over again. All that unfolds it's just yeah. kind of to us. We're like, well, this is a no brainer. Just like I said at the top of the episode, we're banning handguns effectively August 19th. What is the issue out there? Like I don't... We, Please, if you can help us understand. It's it's a really complex thing, but it, it feels complex, but it's not. 
the American population is not divided on this issue. When you poll on issues like background checks and limiting, you know, magazines, uh, magazine size, and a, a wide variety of topics, they poll greater than 80% in favor of greater than 80%. Find me any topic that you get polling data like that on. Right. There are extraordinarily powerful lobbies that have their candidates in positions of power that have been driving decision making for a long time. Americans are smart. We are, you know, it's it's easy to portray this gigantic heterogeneous country in certain ways. I, I still have faith in the majority of Americans are smart, kind people who seek what was, you know, what is described in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in order to do that, we know that our lives have to be kinetic and agile and dynamic and that we have to be able to follow laws and we have to be able to create laws that make things safe and we have to prioritize things properly. What we're hopefully beginning to see is that actually getting into decision-making and lawmaking at the federal level. You had the recent passage of the Bipartisan Safer Families Act, which is the first meaningful piece of gun violence legislation passed in 24 years. That's a big, big deal. It's not a perfect bill. Nobody says that it is, but it's momentum, right? It's that, it's that crack in the dam. And so I think what that sort of thing does for somebody like me is it says, look, pressure works. Voices work. We, we have to continue. This is not done, right? This is going to be work that we're doing for a long time. But we're also just starting. I mean, when you think about where American healthcare professionals are in conversations around uh, gun violence reduction and firearm safety, we are at the starting line. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But we are just getting started. And when our engines get turning, we're a very, very powerful voice. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. It's just we're trying to understand, you know, like even just from your standpoint, maybe yeah. you can give us a little bit from your standpoint, like what are your views on in relation to gun control in the U.S.? And do you get a lot of backlash? Let's start with the use of the term gun control. Okay. So this is a term that was weaponized by the National Rifle Association in the early 90s. And I learned that I learned this point from the head coach of the Golden State Warriors, Steve Kerr, who came on Explore the Space podcast a little over a year ago. When he's out, you know, on the road and things like that, he's, he's a very, very active speaker around firearms and gun violence. And his point is that when you say gun control, you've lost the argument. You have walked right into a trap that was set by the verbiage around gun control basically being the government's going to come and knock on your doors and take your guns away. That is not what we're talking about. But when you say gun control, you've lost the discussion. So it's firearm safety, gun safety, violence interventions, gun violence reduction. These sorts of terms are much more effective. And so that's, again, it's, it's just basically understanding kind of the rules of the game. For me, I am interested in seeing gun violence reduction. I think that there's a lot of rational and safe ways to do it. And I think that they can all be done while still preserving the integrity of what is in the United States, the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution, which allows for people for a, I've forgotten the exact terms, but for basically for the militia to have the right to bear arms. Right. Um, we also know that we have the right to interpret that as times dictate. And so for me, right, seeing the resu the resumption of the fire of the uh, assault weapons ban be reenacted, that sort of thing is important to me. Large capacity magazines, that sort of thing is important to me. And then acknowledging that there is no one thing that's going to solve this. This is a massive problem that's going to require a heterogeneous solution. I'm a hospitalist, right? We have multidisciplinary huddles on every patient every day. And we know that everyone that's in those huddles comes from different disciplines with different backgrounds and different level of expertise, and they all have something to contribute. So for us to move this thing forward, 
it's going to take that sort of voice and mixture of voices at the table. There is no magic solution to it. But I think that the commitment, the enthusiasm, the focus, and the intelligence, they're all there. We just learned something, right, Sarah? I think the fact that like, we didn't even know about the background in terms of where that term came from. And it makes sense because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of terms and phrases that has some weight behind it that can really demonize the whole, the whole movement or what you're trying to make change. They, they enter the lexicon and they're really hard to shake loose. And, and the quick background on this and what's, what's been so profoundly impactful for America's physicians particularly, but for healthcare professionals across the board is something called the Dickey Amendment. And I'll give you the snapshot of the Dickey Amendment. I have a whole grand rounds on this. So 1993, there's a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at the risk of firearm ownership and homicide in the home, not suicide attempt, not accidental discharge, murder by, by firearm. And the data was very, very compelling that owning a firearm increased this risk. So it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, October 1993. This flies in the face of a very, very, very powerful and very, very lucrative lobbying arm in the United States, which is the firearm industry, sort of represented by the National Rifle Association. National Rifle Association does not like this. This paper and the research behind it was funded by the Centers for Disease Control in the United States. It was actually the National Centers for Injury Prevention and Research. So they tried to get it disbanded. The United States Senate said no. So in 1996, a two-sentence amendment is added to the giant what's called omnibus bill, which is basically where the money is. Page 243, I think, out of 799 that basically says any funds from the CDC cannot be used for any activities that are related to gun control. Wow. So that's where gun control enters the lexicon. $2.1 million that were earmarked for gun violence research and gun violence risk reduction is now earmarked for traumatic brain injury. But the wording is so vague that everybody thought if we do anything related to firearms, we're going to lose our funding. We're, we're doing something quote unquote related to gun control. How do we get around this? And so it effectively placed a gag order on any sort of research or conversation around firearms within American healthcare for the better part of almost 30 years. I heard nothing about gun violence prevention, about gun locks, about screening for firearms in the home, about safe storage, nothing. None of us did. We didn't talk about it. We saw a ton of trauma, right? but we right. never talked about the upstream stuff. And it, when you go back and look at the Dickey Amendment, it's pretty striking. And then here's the crazy thing. Here's the, here's the kicker. After the Aurora Theater shooting, where, where there was a, a, a mass shooting in, in a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, there was an editorial published in the Washington Post. This is in 2012. And the editorial basically said, we cannot answer the fundamental questions about guns in the United States. Do they make us safer? Do assault, does owning assault rifles make us safer or not? Do large capacity magazines make us safer or not? We don't know the answers because we haven't been able to study them. And this is a, this is a terrible problem and it's a national tragedy. And guess who was the author of that? editorial in the Washington Post. Congressman James Dickey. Oh my gosh. He disavowed his own amendment in 2012. He said, we should have never done this. It was totally misinterpreted. It went way further than we ever could have dreamed. This was a terrible, terrible mistake. But that's where like words are so powerful, right? Holy. And that's so interesting. Because I mean, when you brought up that statistic just now, it made me think that I'm a huge 
research article nerd. And I've not seen one article on gun violence. And that makes sense. And what you even said makes sense. Just having a gun in the home, just having it accessible. I would think that if you're in a heightened state of, you know, something's going on, you're really emotional, all of the Swiss cheese holes are lining up, that it could lead to violence it being shot off. That makes total sense. And I kind of wonder, you know, if there had been more research, would we even be having this conversation right now? That's that's a question I think about. It's a great question. If you think about the paper from 1993, right, it demonstrates that owning a firearm increases your, the risk of homicide occurring in that household. Right. As healthcare professionals, we don't tell people what to do. We talk through risks and benefits, and we try to help those who come to us make informed decisions that are the best for them and for their family and go forward. We screen for everything, right? We screen for seatbelt usage. We do colorectal cancer screening. We, you name it, we screen for it except one thing. We never ask people about, do you have a fire? Is there a firearm in the home? We're not taught how to do it. We, those metrics are not tracked. Nothing about that is publicly reported. It doesn't exist. And that goes to show just how powerful this messaging was, that this is not something that we even talk about or think about. And the problem with that is, like I said, right, approximately 45% of American households, uh, there's at least one firearm present. And when you think about what's called secure storage, firearm being unloaded, the ammunition in the firearm stored separately, and the firearm having a lock mechanism on it, 40% from data from 2020, 44% follow all three secure storage practices. That's a bad mix. That's a that's a risk for, that's a, that's a setup for disaster. And we see those disasters happen every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. Like just from a quality improvement sta- like standpoint, it's all there. It's insane that we have to have these conversations when it's like we know what markers we need to move to right. get there to to do to do the right, right thing, right? And I, and I mean, I think that we need to talk about how can like folks like myself, Sarah, and other people who might not know what to do in terms of advocacy, like where can we? use our voice, our platform in relation to talking about gun violence. Because I think, you know, like you said, people tell us to stay in our lane. But we know that when we work in the hospital, we've worked in pediatrics, I've worked in the emergency department. When we see that that violence and that ripple effect, how can we not be a part of that? How can we not be a part of, of, you know, the politics of what happens? Because a lot of people say, oh, you know, Healthcare and politics, those are separate. They're not. We need to be involved in policy, but how, how do we get there? What, what should we tell our listeners? That's a great question. You know, for me, the subject of healthcare professional and politics, right? That's, a, that's one that people will automatically fall into kind of battle positions over. It's important that we reframe it. Public health emergencies are apolitical. They're public health emergencies. Our credo, our professionalism, our codes of ethics dictate that this is where we wade in and we make decisions that will impact public health. And those don't come, those can be politicized by others. They're not going to be politicized by us. We just have to figure out ways to do the work and to normalize conversations that are important and to drive towards objectives that are meaningful and work hard and be tough and not give up when people say outrageous things and do outrageous things. It's not easy. I am learning how to do it. I am by no means an expert at this, right? I, I look back on my career and I've had a lot of years go by where it was really easy for me to say, you know what? I'm kind of a conflict averse guy. They're telling me this isn't my fight. I've got 18 patients to see. I'm not waiting in. It's only really been the last couple of years that have been 
formative for me, but I look forward now, right? I've got a long career to go to, to doing a lot of this work um, and to continually getting better at it. And that all being said, right, the actionable things that people can do, we have to normalize really important conversations. So we have to get comfortable asking people about firearms. We have to get comfortable talking about secure firearm storage, learning how to do it in a way that is not judgmental, doing it in a way that we do. And the way I talk about this when I give my grand rounds on the subject, we, we do it in a way that is consistent with how we already screen for so many other things, right? It's a continuum. Assess interest. Talk about the subject. See what the barriers are. See what their understanding of the issue is. Follow up. If there's resistance at first, that's okay. We circle back. If someone's not interested in making interventions around smoking cessation, we don't stop. We don't like never bring it up again. Say, like, cool, next time you come in, we can talk about it some more if you right. want. If you don't want to, that's okay too. It's it's that incremental approach, but we're good at that stuff. So it's just switch it for firearms. Switch it for uh, switch it for looking at this and framing it around. Look, I am here to help you make the best decisions for your health. I do not have the power to take your firearms away. I do not have the power to take your cigarettes away. But I am educated and I'm smart and I want the best for you. So let's talk about what these things look like. That's the framework that is really important. And then understanding, right? Language is powerful why in those conversations we avoid things like gun control because for a patient that's going to fall into a bucket where they're going to have that automatic sort of syncopated response that's not going to be helpful so we can stay away from stuff like that when you say the word control the minute you say the word control people get their backs up because nobody wants to be controlled like you said nobody wants to be told what to do but we really need to start normalizing these conversations and i say this a lot but i think the education for this should start in medical school or nursing school we need to plant the seed early we need to talk about it when people you know start at a new organization this should be part of orientation and just keep that conversation going i just i think that like in canada we we don't talk about it because we think it isn't a problem. And it's not as big of a problem here, but it's certainly a problem. I mean, a friend of mine works in the trauma unit at a large hospital, and that's all they see, right? It's these gang shootings, intimate partner disputes. So I think there's a lot of learning that can come out of this. It's it's going to be great when you both rise further and further in leadership because, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. You want, to hear, you want to hear how much education I got around... Uh, origins and solutions to firearms in when I was a medical student. So I went to medical school in Houston, Texas, and this is not to impugn my medical school. This was, this is just the way it was done. <laughs> I love my medical school. I'm proud to have gone there. And everyone that went there will probably say something similar. What I learned about it, um, we had one, we had a, at the end of a lecture, it was before a holiday weekend. And the professor said, just want to remind all of you, 50% of the cars on the road this weekend will have a gun in them. And half of those people driving them will be drunk be careful. That was it. That was he it. He wasn't trying to be flipping. It really was it was a genuine warning. Wow. But I also say like this is what I learned. I don't say this is what I was taught and there's a distinction there. I didn't seek out more. It was very comfortable for me to fall into that we're not talking about this. This isn't my fight. This isn't my thing. There's another, you know, there's another trauma alert and we're going to go to the recess room and put in chest tubes and whatever. Okay. That was comfortable for me. Um, so it was like what I learned, not what I was taught. Those resources were probably available. There were probably people in that incredible campus who had a lot of insight around this. I certainly didn't seek it out, but it also wasn't part of the main curriculum. Yeah, it's definitely not a part of the nursing curriculum. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I can't think of like that's probably more than what we've got. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
But I just wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about the First and Second Amendment and what your thoughts are on that. So, for example, the First Amendment in relation to Alex Jones and Sandy Hook, he made money off of saying Sandy Hook didn't exist or didn't occur. Do you think that his freedom of speech is being infringed upon? Freedom of speech does not mean freedom from consequence. You got it. <laughs> that, that's my response to that. Um, and I think the, what the decisions of the courts are bearing out speaks to the fact that you can say what you want. You're accountable for the consequences that come from that. With respect to the Second Amendment, I think I shared my, my, my views on it. Firearms are, you know, they're incredible tools. They're a really important thing to learn about and to understand. They're a deeply ingrained part of American culture, um, going all the way back to before the formation of this, cult, of this country. And there is, they're deeply ingrained in, in, in family and community traditions. They can be managed, treated, and dealt with responsibly, just like any other tool that has the potential to injure. And we do that with everything else, whether it's a car or a helicopter or you name it, there's guardrails around it. And for some reason, well, <laughs> the reasons are pretty clear why, but the push around the ability to have unregulated firearm purchasing and carrying in certain parts of the United States. Um, it's not really driven by the commitment to the second amendment. There are other forces at work, uh, I think is a fair way to put it, but just like any other part of the constitution, right, they can be interpreted based on the times that we're in. And I think when we see weapons that are designed to be used in a combat environment, on you know in private hands we can probably ask ourselves uh, what is a very relatively easy question is this a good idea uh, and do we have data that suggests that when they're not in the hands of the public that the risk of mass shooting goes down we do have that data we had an assault weapons ban that expired but when it was in place it was very effective so seeing something like that reenacted right it was recently voted on and it did not pass um, i think we would see something like that again yeah, I mean, I, I remember kind of watching that mm -hmm. and hearing about it not passing and just kind of sighing, really, because I, I'm just I'm wondering what the tone will be over the next few years um, when it comes to talking about gun violence in the States and what are, what are the next steps that are really going to be taken. And I think from like a healthcare standpoint yeah. in terms of what we do need to do and what we can do on our end, I've, I've yeah. always thought about build it into the EMR. How do we build it into the way that we document and ask questions? Like, for example, like you were saying, we don't even ask, but how do we build right. it into the work that we're already doing? You know, you're, you're normalizing those conversations. I think that's the most important thing, but at least in the United States, the most important thing that's coming up is the midterm election in November of this year. And that's where healthcare professionals and physicians need to understand that if, if they feel passionate about it and they're tweeting about it and they're creating TikToks about it, that gives the illusion of activity. Um, it's really hard to change a mind. We're all pretty entrenched and in our silos on social media. Um, so the opportunity to become more engaged in preparation for the midterm elections is really important. Healthcare professionals in the United States do not vote at the same rate as the general public. The reasons for that are myriad, but we need to make sure people are registering to vote. Um, the act of registering to vote, and quite honestly, the act of voting itself, that's nonpartisan activity. Right. Who you decide to vote for, that might be partisan, it might not, but not everything on your ballot is partisan. It's it's critically important that everyone is registering to vote. And then there's a variety of other ways that people can become engaged that, again, are low-hanging fruit, they're quick, but they're effective. It's calling your elected officials and letting them know what you think about certain issues. It's working at the local and state level. It's with your professional associations, making sure that they're driving towards things that you all agree by consensus are important. 
our professional, the, you know, the, the organizations that we work for, understanding what are their goals and objectives and how can we better support them or change them. There's lots of different ways that people can get involved. It can feel totally overwhelming. And there's that sense of, I'm only one voice, I'm not gonna make any change. And helping people understand the critical need to overcome that inertia and understand, yeah, you're one voice, but when all of those one voices are together, we're a tidal wave. Um, and especially for healthcare in the United States, there's so many of us in every single state we can be a very, very powerful voice for change. I mean, I, I, I can't even, there's nothing more I can add to that in terms of that is the power and the passion behind true advocacy. So it's like, get out from behind your Twitter walls and make sure that you put those tweets into action because it, it, yeah. it does take, it does take a village and you, you guys right. are like, I mean, I can't vote because I'm not American, but I mean, you guys need to get out there. Make sure that you're, yeah. if you're, if you know one person who's not registered, help them get registered and get out there and please vote because we're watching here in Canada. We're watching <laughs> about, right. we're watching very hard about what's going to happen yeah. in the midterms. I, I pay a lot of attention to American politics and I'm not going to yep. put my views out right now because I don't want people to do what they did here in Ontario when we, they had an idea that this person's going to win, this person's going to win and people decided not to vote. Go out and vote. Listen to Dr. Mark Shapiro. He's giving you the goods today. Make sure you That's get right. registered and make sure you go out and vote. Is there anything that we didn't capture, didn't discuss that you'd like to lend a, a couple last words to? Uh, you know, I appreciate that space. I, I, I don't like platitudes. Uh, I don't find them to be effective. And, you know, people just sort of fall into their well-worn patterns when they hear one. I do think it's important that in any topic that you feel impassioned about that affects your life, that affects the lives of those that you love and care about, that affects your community, there is tremendous satisfaction that comes from just getting in the arena and just weighing in and getting a little dirty. Uh, find a place to start. The forces that keep things the way they are, especially when the way they are does not suit your goals, harms those around you, they they want it. It's important that they you continue to feel disempowered, disengaged, and disconnected. So finding ways to seek out how that can change for you is critically important. It it requires tremendous bravery. It it requires tremendous courage. It is not in most of our comfort zones, particularly in healthcare. We are so well trained in so many things, and we receive zero training in this. That is obviously a little bit different now, but for the most part, most of us are in the weeds. That is okay. No one has done anything wrong. No one has made a mistake. It's an opportunity to do things differently and to do things better. It does take some courage. It does take some motivation. It takes a little bit of energy. It's worth it. That's the end of that. That's the thing. We're all going to have to answer some questions, you know, in 20 or 30 years from people that we love and, and care about. And they're going to say, look, what, what were you doing during these times? What were you doing during the pandemic? What were you doing to address climate change? What were you doing around firearms? I've got a young son. He's going to ask me someday mm. and I need an answer. Mm. You know, um, my parents watch my, my, my sister, my wife, you know, my family overseas, you guys, we're all watching. We're all connected. And in that connection, there comes some level of accountability and in that space, go forward. Yeah. Wow. Really wise words. I think that anyone listening can take some uh, of what you've imparted on us today, lots of wisdom, and just even take one step. So if there's one thing you can do, you know, get more educated, figure out what you can do to make a difference in your own community. If there is someone that you can talk to, give them more information. I think 
just start there. And what you said about staying in your lane, I think we need to just get rid of that mentality because a lot of people might think, well, I'm not an expert on gun violence. I don't know anything about it. But you can learn, right? Just just as how you did. You learned, you educated yourself, you talked to people, you kind of found your own community. So I think this is all really important stuff we can all do. So thank you so much, Mark, for being on the podcast today. We will be including um, your links in the show notes so people can find you, listen to your podcast and support you that way. Well, I appreciate that very much. And, you know, these sorts of conversations, again, this normalizes activities that are really important. It normalizes us talking about being advocates instead of just saying, well, you're not doing it, so I'm not going to do it either. It normalizes the fact that we need to know that the international community is watching us and that there's going to be that sense of we're not necessarily, we don't have the same passport, but we're part of a shared community. And in that space, we have to do the right things and take the right proactive steps strive towards life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yep. This is one conversation of many more conversations to come on this. And yeah, I hope we'll circle back after the midterm elections. Sure. That would be great. Thank you both very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming to the Greeners podcast. Thank you.